Welcome back to another episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. Just as the second half of the 2023 baseball season begins tonight, we return to the third game, the third and final game, of the 1979 National League Championship Series between the Reds and the Pirates. We're going to be at Three Rivers, the first game here for the Pirates' home crowd in Pittsburgh. Going to be raucous, going to be excited, going to be a party. And frankly, sort of a, a celebration for this amazing Pirates team here in Game 3. Uh, they're going to have to wait a little bit, though. Um, a bit of a rain delay to start this game, and uh, that will play a factor uh, for a couple of reasons. Perhaps makes the delayed start, might think make things a little tough for the red starting pitcher, and again, we're going to see sort of the wet turf come into play um, a little bit with positioning and perhaps some misplays or some guys taking advantage of, uh, and and all of that you know the wet turf it, you know you 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 play on turf so that it's easier to get started uh if there's a little bit of rain it's easier to play through but it's not as if it doesn't have an impact on the conditions it's not like a dome stadium like you often see now um you know the places with retractable roofs and and, and all that um when that turf gets wet it's it's an interesting factor. But anyway, they can't wait. They're so excited anyway here in Pittsburgh for game three. And uh, they probably wish they would have gotten a few more chances but they uh, to see them uh, this season. Uh, but the Pirates fans, they are, you know, if they win today, they know that they're going to get at least two more in the World Series, if not a third game. Uh, it was known at the time they didn't go based off of best record uh, like they do now, and with it being up in the air of whether or not who would have home field in the World Series, they just decided. Odd years, it was the American League. Even years, National League. Why? Eh, beats me. I don't know why. Uh, but they alternated, just like sort of in 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 situations. They used to in these series. They used to do two and three. Uh, you know, two games at home, three game, uh, like you know, two games, then three, uh, for the five game sets, uh, rather than the two two one, uh, that we do now. Uh, so that's just another thing to keep in mind of who would get home field advantage in certain series uh, would would change. Oftentimes, um, it wasn't based off of record; it was kind of random selection, uh, which is a little weird if you ask me. Um. But anyway, into this game here, we're going to have a matchup between Burt Blylevin and Mike Lacoste. Burt Blylevin, already the veteran. We're going to talk about him a little bit. Uh, Lacoste, uh, not really known. He was a guy who, you know, pitched in the big league for quite a while, for, you know, about like 12 or so years. Um, you know, was pretty effective, was an all-star this season in 1979, one of the Reds' better pitchers. Um, relatively young he's about to, it's his second year in the big leagues um 
But again, another time, another thing of this Reds team part of the story is they don't really have pitchers to turn to who are, they have some guys who were good and effective, um, but other than Seaver, they didn't have any, any guys with that sort of ace level potential. Whereas for the Pirates, although his time in Pittsburgh, he certainly was not viewed as an ace by this, by the Pittsburgh fans. Um, and his numbers wouldn't necessarily back it up. When he was at his best, Burt Blylevin was an ace-level pitcher, a Hall of Fame-level pitcher. An interesting thing about him throughout his career, of his very, very long career, I mean, um, compiling statistics, compiling strikeouts, innings, that was kind of um, an argument for or against, depending on your perspective, for Burt Blylevin to make the Hall of Fame. He's a certain pitcher who had a lot of dominance without as much winning. Um, you know, only 287 career wins. That's still a lot, but 250 career losses. A lot of decisions, but not as many decisions when he was with the Pirates because when he was with the Twins and later when he would be with Cleveland and then back with the Twins and with the Angels, he got to complete a lot of games. You know, it was a guy with a ton of complete games throughout his career, including 60 shutouts. I mean, that's the one thing I want to mention. 60 career shutouts for Burt Blylevin. In terms of modern pitchers, right? So we're, we're, we're excluding Walter Johnson, Cy Young, Christy Mathewson, Grover Cleve, all of those guys who, you know, threw a lot more complete games than even this era of pitchers and just threw a ton more games in general. The only pitchers ahead of him in sort of the modern baseball era are Whitey Ford with 63 and Tom Seaver and Nolan Ryan with 61. 60 shutouts for Burt Blylevin in his career. That's a big reason why he's in the Hall of Fame. And nearly 5,000 innings, almost like 3,800, almost 3,900 strikeouts. And you'll see with his stuff today, with that breaker, when the Dutchman was at his best, there were few better at making hitters look powerless and ineffective at the plate than Burt Blylevin. More on that after a word from our sponsor. Well, nowadays, there are plenty of places you can get yourself a Pittsburgh salad, a salad with fries on top. But there's only one original place where the legendary Pittsburgh food tradition got started, and it's still here today. Jerry's Curb Service, just up the Ohio River north of the city in Beaver County serving it the way it was invented. Now, here's the origin story. Back in the 50s, a guy drives up to Jerry's, and he wants a steak sandwich with the fries on it, but no bun. Well, Jerry's wife, Donna, comes up with the idea of putting it all on a salad, and Jerry comes up with the dressing. The Pittsburgh salad is born. You got lettuce, tomato, onion, cheddar cheese, olive, chopped steak done the way you like it, Idaho fries, and Jerry's special dressing. Mm. If you haven't had a Pittsburgh salad before, you owe it to yourself to make your first one from Jerry's. It won't be your last. Jerry's Curb Service. Just pull on up, turn on your parking lots, and we'll be out to take your order. Maybe even in roller skates in Beaver, Pennsylvania. Just across the Ohio River at the place where it makes a left turn towards Ohio. 
born in post-World War II Netherlands in 1951, Rick Albert Blylevin, uh, about three years after his birth, uh, emigrated with his family, initially to Saskatchewan in Canada, but eventually settling uh, in Southern California, uh, where he would spend much of his youth and uh, and his sort of teenage development. Um, a very sort of industrial, hardworking, uh, stubborn family. Uh, he, he, Bert Blylevin, certainly had a lot of stubbornness to him. You know, he was a very, grew to be a very tall and lanky kid, discovered baseball, was watching Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax actually played a very significant sort of influence on his life. Uh, the arm troubles that Koufax developed are the reason why his father kind of prohibited him from throwing a breaking ball until he was a teenager. But once Bert learned that breaker, man in high school turned him into a star. Um, he really caught the eye of scouts like his senior year. He threw two no-hitters, had a 21-strikeout game, uh, was sort of a, a prize prospect in many ways. He would be drafted by the Twins in 1969 and sort of be promised that, hey, he would probably be in the majors in two years, maybe two or three years. Well, they were off by that. He was up in the majors just a year later in 1970 as the Twins were making a pennant push. Made his debut at 19 years of age, a young, bushy-eyed guy who came in and actually had a really solid rookie year, though uh, in the playoffs, you know, the uh, manager, uh, Bill Rigney, uh, opted to go with another arm uh, and also Jim Cott. Um, you know, another went with another young arm, uh, but Blylevin came in and performed well, uh, you know, in relief, but the twins ended up losing to the, to the Orioles that year as they had in 69. Blylevin would go on to turn into the ace of the twins, but you know, the twins who made the playoffs in 69 and 70, well, they really became sort of a mediocre, if not a lousy team as the seventies wore on and certainly owner Calvin Griffith uh, scrimped and saved and really didn't spend despite having like an MVP level Rod Carew, um, you know, and an ace in Burt Blylevin. So he was a guy who pitched well, as I mentioned before, lots and lots of shutouts, lots of complete games, but not so much in terms of real success, especially team level success. And, you know, in an era with the likes of Jim Palmer, Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver, Catfish Hunter, these guys who even Ferguson Jenkins, right? Blylevin sort of looked to the side, though, of course, pretty much all of his years, right? When you look at for the Twins, his highest ERA was as a rookie of 318. A guy always sub three ERA or at the most at three tons and tons of innings, tons of strikeouts, a really dominant pitcher. But as his tenure ended with the Twins, it get, things got sort of feisty in a way of he and Calvin Griffith did not see eye to eye. And, you know, Blylevin was also a guy seen as 
someone who pitched for himself and not necessarily for the team. That was sort of the reputation uh, that he got. And certainly his time in Pittsburgh wouldn't necessarily help that. We'll get to that in a moment. But as, you know, free agency was on the, on, you know, on the rise or on the horizon, um, you know, he got traded away to Texas. Um, Though in sort of, they might've been able to have traded him earlier had Griffith, you know, been a little smarter and, and not been so worried about saving money. They might've been able to get a better return, but that's neither here nor there. Blylevin would go on to Texas, pitch pretty well, uh, sign a new deal with them, basically a six year deal. But within, after the second year, he would end up getting traded to Pittsburgh kind of, and he wasn't necessarily happy about that. The Pirates fans were not happy about that as Al Oliver got traded away, uh, who, of course, was a fan favorite and a tremendous ball player. I encourage you, if you've never seen Al Oliver's baseball reference page, go take a look. One of the like most underrated great players from the 70s and early 80s, a, a, my kind of guy, uh, especially one of those guys I look for. I don't know if any of you are playing that, that kind of the new craze, which is the immaculate grid. Um, he's one of my, my favorites uh, to use uh, for, uh, for, for certain things. If you're looking for a guy who played on the pirates and the Rangers, Al Oliver's your man. Anyway, Bly Levin would come to the Pirates and, and actually with this team, you know, he would go on to be the guy who threw the most innings for the Pirates over these years. And and the surface level stats are, are, are solid, would have, you know, he, he had a decent record, had a good ERA. However, his complete games really dropped, you know, 15 his first year, 11 in 78, but just four in 79. And it was a point of contention between him and manager Chuck Tanner. Uh, he felt that Tanner was a little too reliant on his bullpen and he wanted to be able to finish to finish games. I mean, you look at, it was the lowest number of complete games since his rookie year when he only had five in just 25 starts. Uh, and you know, Blylevin went 12 and five this season, a 360 ERA, which was a career high by the way. Uh, but 237 innings, still a really effective pitcher. Um, he's going to go on and have a tremendous game and actually get his wish, be able to get a complete game here in game three. Uh, he stated before the game, and we're going to hear this, he wanted to be the guy on the mound at the end. And until I had really looked up, I didn't understand kind of the double meaning of that. It wasn't just wanting to win. He wanted the complete game. Like, being the stubborn man he is, but he also saw, saw it as a point of pride, I believe. Um, his final year with Pittsburgh in 1980 was not a good one. He had his work, basically his worst season on the Hill, a losing record, uh, a, a high threes ERA, kind of walked away from the team. He was seen as sort of that disgruntled player. Uh, and I don't think he necessarily, you know, despite actually pitching brilliantly in the postseason in 1979, we're going to see him also pitch pretty well in the World Series, doesn't have the most favorable reputation probably amongst Pittsburgh Pirates fans, um, which is fair based off of some of his actions. But I think we we would have a little bit of a different perspective perspective on it now. Um, we were a lot more critical of players who were advocating for themselves back then. Uh, than we are now, though, of course, we let criticisms fly all the time. 
He would get traded to Cleveland in 81, was excellent in the strike score in season, but then really struggled with injuries. This is the other thing, too, is his, his time with the Pirates. He was probably dealing with shoulder issues. All of those innings probably led to him pitching through injuries and not being at his best. That is one thing I would mention as well, is he maybe could have used some time off. Um, he would go on to struggle a bit with Cleveland, but then in 84 and 85, really be excellent, uh, have back-to-back top three Cy Young finishes. And then actually he got traded back to Minnesota, would go on to win a World Series with them in 87, and finally got to go home and pitch with the Angels in the late 80s. You know, after the worst year of his career in 1988, would go on at the age of 38 and 89 with the Angels to go 17-5 and five with a 2.73 ERA, finished fourth in Cy Young. Um, you know, he fell short of 300 wins in his career. Just short, 13 wins shy. And maybe had uh, Chuck Tanner left him in for a few of those, uh, few of those games, in 1979 or his time with the Pirates, he would have been closer or maybe could have gotten the job done. But Burt Blylevin is a Hall of Famer now. He would, of course, go on to be, for a long time, a broadcaster kind of known as one of the voices of the Twins uh, for for decades. Um, and quite simply, Blylevin is a Hall of Famer, though when you dig into it, you can understand why he was overlooked at the time and you can understand why there was some bristleness and, and why there was a bit of adversity in getting him to the hall of fame, but the way he's going to pitch today, man, it, it, it goes and shows you that, that dominance that he held. Uh, and I mean, that breaking ball, that curveball it's so sharp. And with his length, with how lanky he is and the deception he has in his motion, when he's on, man, whoo, he can be special. And speaking of Hall of Famers, we actually have the Hall of Famer Milo Hamilton back for today's game. Ford C. Frick Award winner. Uh, longtime broadcaster. I'll have more on Milo Hamilton uh, when we get to the end of this game um, because ultimately this is going to be his final time, his final game broadcasting for the Pirates. Uh, but he actually, he was a broadcaster in many different places and had been there for many famous moments. There's a reason why he's a Hall of Famer. But we're going to be back with our KDKA boys here. So... Let's get into this game. We are going to hear from them as Blylevin takes the mound in the first inning. And as we get ready for playoff baseball at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. And Bert Blylevin is running to the mound. He'll be getting in his warm-up passes to his battery made at on. That infield's going to be throwing the ball around. Stargell and Garner on the right side. Foley and Madlock on the left. The outfield of Milner, Moreno, and Parker left to right. The coaches for Cincinnati have taken their places. Russ Nixon at third. Ron Plazas at first. And as the Dutchman kicks the dirt away, some people see that happen, probably don't realize that ground crew fills it in, Nelly. And as a starting pitcher, you'd like to get it just the way you want it. Well, they certainly do. And the ground crew, as they do, fill that in very flat with the with the uh, rubber. It uh, You need that hole. And if it's slick right against the rubber, you can slip. 
All right, we're going to look at him on the field up close. Willie Stargell at first base, number eight. The captain of the Bucks, whose home run won the opening game in the 11th inning. The crowd is ready on top of the Pirates' dugout over what usually says the Pirates. They've got basically a sign that says the family. Because, of course, the Pirates were family. Sister Sledge, the theme of the 79 Pirates. And they, they you can just tell from the crowd the energy is there. They're so excited and so happy for this team. And, well, they're going to be reward, rewarded. The fans will be rewarded in this game here. To start off the game, he's able to get Dave Collins to ground out to second to roll over. Garner moves over to his right. And then he gets Joe Morgan to pop out on a fly ball. Blylevin's doing a good job of getting ahead of guys. You can tell he's amped up, but he's getting ahead of guys. He's wanting to get to that breaking ball. He does get ahead of Dave Concepcion, but Concepcion's able to stay back, send that breaking ball over to the right side. He's kind of been a thorn in the side in many ways for the Reds. Um getting on base. He's actually leading them in hits so far. And that brings up George Foster. And it's really important when you come home, you want to put up a zero. You want to put up that goose egg early in the game. Because if you don't, right, like, you know, you don't want the crowd to get deflated early on. You want them to keep that energy up, to put the pressure. And especially when you're up 2-0 in the series, right? Like you want... You want to keep putting pressure on the Reds. You want to see what happens when you keep doing that. Are are they going to rise to the challenge? You feel like you are. Um, But good defensive plays, we've seen them time and again this postseason, have been sort of the hallmark so far. And they can help you get out of an inning right and prevent trouble when you're facing the middle of the order and the pirates and tim foley are going to deliver that for the dutchman here conception getting his fifth hit that's the most in the series so far foley leads our club with four george foster the batter bouncer deep short it'll take a great play and they do it at second on a fourth And our battle and bucks, the champs of the East, are just now coming into bat. That is a great play by Tim Foley to go in the hole, quickly make the short throw to second, rather than trying to fire it across to uh, to try to get Foster, who runs pretty well. Not the most uh, dynamic runner out there, but Foster can get down the line pretty well. And that's a great way to, you know, not have to extend your pitcher in the first inning, uh, get your team in the dugout, and immediately put pressure on the Reds, which the Pirates are going to do. A little play on words there from Milo Hamilton kind of taking a turn on the phrase Holy Toledo with Foley Toledo. Holy Toledo, of course, more 
kind of more attributed to longtime Oakland A's broadcaster Bill King, uh, but of course a common phrase used by many people, especially in the baseball world, uh, when something stupendous happens. Anyway, let's get to the bottom of the first with Mike Lacoste on the mound. And kind of immediately from the outset, it sort of seems interesting. Like Lacoste looks a little uncomfortable warming up. And from the outset, John McNamara, the Reds manager, has the bullpen going. Fred Norman, we remember Fred Norman, the longtime veteran uh, who was part of those World Series teams in 75 and 76. Uh, He's already warming up and... uh, Bryles and Hamilton are kind of speculating as to why is that happening? Is there something wrong with Lacoste? Uh, are, are we just getting him ready to face the lefties? Is he just there to get the righties out? Um, and early on, it's a little bit of trouble for Mike Lacoste. Uh, he throws some close pitches, which, you know, to the ire of Johnny Bench are called balls. And you can actually see Bench catches one, frames it, looks directly back at the umpire like, we doing this? Really? Come on now. Um, but pitches on the edge don't go the way. Moreno works a good at bat, draws a walk, and then immediately on the first pitch, after a couple of pickoff attempts, steals second, no problem at all. And then a really important play happens here. A ball is chopped to shortstop. And it's a kind of a tough play going in the hole. Moreno reads it immediately, takes off knowing that, hey, Concepcion's going to have to make a perfect play to get me out, and Concepcion does not make a perfect play, gets it, rushes the throw over, throws high. Moreno slides in, basically takes out the legs of Ray Knight, who secures the ball, but now it's first and third, nobody out, pressure on immediately. But once again, initially, we're actually going to see the Reds do as best as they can, with even with the middle of the lineup up, right? Dave Parker, Willie Stardrew, John Milner, three lefties who can do a lot of damage. The Reds are going to do a good job of limiting that damage initially. For the rest of the game, well, <laughs> it'll be a different story, and perhaps all of these early pitches and all of this early stress is going to get to the Reds in this elimination game. Here's Dave Parker at the plate with a chance to put the Pirates up at home in this playoff game. Fly ball. Left field. Foster is there. Remember, he got a speed march in a third. They'll send him home. The throw will be late, and it is 1-2-0. hit about, you're going to look at it, he's about 280 feet down the line. He was, and without without Foster being able to get behind the ball and get enough momentum to come into the ball and make a throw, he had to almost make it flat-footed, and with the speed of Omar, he beats the play. Here it is again. He just didn't get much on it either. Kind of dribbled in the bench. In many ways, you could probably attribute that run to Omar Moreno himself. Him getting over to first on a walk, stealing second, using his speed to get to third, and then on a play, like, by the way, 
like the throw is not a bad one from Foster. It does sort of trickle in at the end, but it's online. A slower runner might get tagged out there, you know, with the throw being to home plate. That speed getting the Pirates up. We, we've seen that again. The We think about game two, Bill Madlock beating out that ground ball uh, in order to bring a run home. Those types of plays matter in the postseason. It's actually not going to necessarily be a smooth rest of the inning. Basically, uh, Willie Stargell is going to put a charge into one, but it's just right at the center fielder, Cesar Geronimo. Uh, but then John Milner draws a four-pitch walk. Bill Madlock draws a four-pitch walk and sort of wondering what the heck is going on with Lacoste here. Uh, but Ed Ott flies out to the track and right, not able to uh, to punish the situation there. In the uh, in the top of the second, um, you know, Johnny Bench flies out to center. Dreesen hits one hard, but right at Phil Garner, who was able to come over and make a good play, uh, kind of snares it off the ground. Uh, Ray Knight does get a double uh, down the left field line, uh, but Geronimo flies out to route to right. Actually, in a three out count, interestingly enough, he he takes uh, takes a chance there, takes a gamble there, but with the pitcher on deck. Uh, you know, you get a good pitch, you see it. Not not a thing I have as much of a problem with, but back then, swinging 3-0, not viewed very favorably. That brings us to the bottom of the second. And this is where the field comes in to play. And knowing your place, we saw this happen in game one with right field and Dave Collins. We're going to see it happen again this time with Phil Garner at the plate instead of Omar Moreno. Just take a listen to what happens here, and you can almost see immediately like that that thing of knowing the elements. It's that play where you can get caught in between, and it really end up being costly for you. For the Pirates, it's great. For Dave Collins and the Reds, It's just the way this series has gone, it seems. Here's Phil Garner at 293 for the year. There's Garner's gang. (laughs) The Garner gang uh, banner and the big red mustache and Yosemite Sam. They're all his. There's a line drive single into right field. Cincinnati with a wet turf. He also does it here on a wet turf, not allowing enough room for that ball to bounce out in front and play him because it's so quick. Ends up on third base with nobody out. That is scored as a triple. Garner's gang, the Bucko Brigade, the Mad Dog, Maniacs. A lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of just kind of awesome fun quirks to this Pittsburgh fan base really really lovable and well they've got a lovable team you can see why that connection 
that they have. Talk about it a lot. It matters. It matters. Uh, it really can kind of, it just adds to the, not only the greatness of the players, but sort of the greatness of a team and their story and their narrative. But once again, sort of right field and line drives to right, causing a whole issue for Dave Collins and the Reds in this series happened in game one, happened in game two when he actually came in and caught the ball. Uh, but the call didn't go his way. And now again, a runner on third, less than two outs in danger again for the Reds. But again, sort of Mike Lacoste in many ways is kind of going to try to do his job here. He actually gets a comebacker first pitch. Blylevin hits it well. Lacoste gets it, freezes Garner at third, makes the throw over to first. But the command really is that what's at issue here. He walks Omar Moreno on four pitches. So already four walks, right? No hits. I mean, a, a hit to right field, that's the first hit. But, you know, gave up a run without allowing a hit in the first inning. And now has already had four walks in two innings. And that brings up Tim Foley, the man who so far in this series has done what, what has needed to be done, whether it with whether it's an RBI hit, a sack fly, a sack bunt, or a great play at shortstop. He's the guy who's come in and you can see, I mean, he's what you think of when you think of, of a 70s and 80s player, right? That guy who, again, is not going to put up the best stats out there, but is just going to do, we would say, the little things, but he's going to make those winning plays time and time again. And here he is with an opportunity to add on to the lead, and he's going to come through for the Pirates once again. There's a fly ball to center. That should be deep enough to get scraps home. Geronimo is there. They'll concede the run, I would think. He can't throw him out from there. Never could. Sacrifice fly and an RBI for Foley, who gets his third run batted in of this series. And the reception committee there, and there are some happy Pirate fans. So Tim Foley, and as Nellie Brown suggested, first time he came up today, he's trying to make a bid for that MVP trophy. Played the good shortstop. He's had four hits, and he's driven in three runs. Getting the job done. It matters so much. That's going to close the book on Mike Lacoste, who uh, comes out of the game there. Fred Norman, who's been warming up since the first pitch, is going to come in to face those lefties, and it's actually going to—he's actually going to strike out Dave Parker, uh, able to get him with some breaking balls, put him away, and get the Reds back, uh, back in the dugout to try to do something against Burt Blylevin. But it's a two-nothing lead. You know, we haven't had that real breakout hit. Right, you know, only one hit so far. Not really too many hard hit balls, other than uh, that line drive. Uh, line drive by Willie Sardell was hard hit, but that line drive to right by Phil Garner. You know, so it's just you. You can feel like there's more, right? If, if you're if you're given that many walks, four walks in two innings, you want to score a lot more runs than just two. Uh, but the Pirates. They're going to take advantage of more opportunities in this game. 
in the top of the third with Fred Norman at the plate, you know, lefty pitcher, just basically an uncontested at bat. Burt Blyvin go, goes to work, gets his first strikeout of the game. And then Dave Collins is actually, he's going to single through the left side, hit a line drive over to uh, basically um, in, in order to get there. Um, and then uh, Joe Morgan is going to ground out, kind of roll over to first. And then a really important play happens here with Dave Collins on second base. Concepcion's going to get another base hit, hit one hard right up the middle, but Phil Gardner makes a diving stop. It's not a, you know, no chance to throw Concepcion out at first, but he saves the run. It's a really important play because, again, those winning plays of going to dive, even when you know you have no shot of getting the runner at first, but you save the run and still, more work to do with George Foster at the plate, but seeing that play, right? Like, you know, I, I can tell you as a pitcher, when a guy goes hard like that to save a run, I know I've got to do whatever I can in order to make sure that he's rewarded for that, right? That I do my job as a pitcher of, okay, you gave me the opportunity and now I'm going to make sure to shut the door here in this inning. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And we saw how impressed Right, you know, the, our our broadcasters would get with Jim Bibby or Don Robinson stuff. Well, you're gonna see it here with how Burt Blylevin gets nasty with George Foster with these breaking balls. Just an absolute clinic here to shut the door on the Reds in the third inning. Blylevin in a situation here where he does not want to make a mistake on a hitter like Foster. Collins third, Concepcion first, two down. Strike in there on there's old Uncle Charlie again. What beautiful pitch. Not only had great deception, but it had great location. And these are the type of pitches that Burt Blylevin is going to have to make to get out George Foster. And here it is again. Look at the bend in that river. 0-2. Oh, brother. Some of the folks behind the screen were trying to help the plate umpire make up his mind. All right, Blylevin took that hot setting up outside. Well, he got him. Foster and the Reds, no runs, two hits, no errors. They leave a pair. We're in the middle of the third at Three Rivers. So far, so good. Pirates, two, Reds, nothing. Just a phenomenal breaking ball there from Burt Blylevin. Falling off the table would be what we, uh, what we call now a sword, sort of that check swing. Uh, locks up George Foster, gets his guys back in the dugout, and coming up to lead off the bottom of the third, it's the superstar. Pops, Willie Stargell. And he's going to fall behind in this count to Fred Norman. But Fred Norman, well, the old saying is, if you hang him, we bang him. And Fred Norman is going to hang this one. And, well, just take a listen to the captain, 
coming through for his team at home. Willie Stargell, the Pirates' all-time home run leader. And the fans here know it, too. There's a drive. The ballpark will never hold it. It's going, going, and it's a club level. A towering home run. Superstar, super sergeant. And bounds away in Pittsburgh Real cement mixer slider thrown by Fred Norman and just punished by Willie Stargell. No doubt about it. Launched. And the crowd, you can just hear how loud they are. There's just the feeling of, okay, boys, we got this one. Man. I mean, the, it, there, there's a great pitcher reaction. That's one of my favorite things to do of who to watch when a ball is hit, right? You can watch the hitter. Oftentimes they're going to know when it's out. But a lot of times you're gonna, the pitcher's going to the pitcher and the catcher. Sometimes you see the catcher, the shoulders slump or they look away in disgust. Fred Norman, they go and they show sort of a replay after he throws. He comes out of his hand, turns and looks and just looks down like, "Oh man, that that was a mistake." Ah. Uh, Shouldn't have thrown that one. <laughs> How about that for Willie Stargell? 3 nothing, and the party is going to continue in this inning. John Milner is going to pop up, but that brings up Bill Madlock, the midseason acquisition. Not unlike Tim Foley was an early season acquisition, but these acquisitions coming up huge for the Pirates in this series. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. First pitch, the Mad Dog coming through and going to laser one right out of here. That's going to bring up the Mad Dog, who walked in the first inning. Madlock batting with nobody on in front of him and one away. And Ed Ott on deck as you looked into the dugout. There's a drive. Way back into left. Edwin's going gone. A line drive home run that knocks one of the concrete blocks out of the left field stadium wall. And mighty Mad Dog takes a bite on. 
everybody out there knowing that it takes as he takes another bow, recognizing the cheers of the fans. He just got all of that ball too, and Freddie Norman now is not being particular, gave it up to a lefty, and now is giving it up to a righty. Well, this crowd is really buzzing now. A four-nothing lead. And with a pitcher who seems to be getting his groove going, it's great news for the Pirates. And actually, Ed Ott is going to kind of put a charge into one to right, down the right field line, but just not enough there for the Pirates. But things are looking great as we head in to the middle innings of this ball game. And again, Blylevin seems to get his groove going, gets Johnny Bench to ground out to third, gets Dan Dreesen looking, works around around a Ray Knight single, and then sort of overpowers Cesar Geronimo with that breaking ball, picks up another two strikeouts. And then we get to the bottom of the fourth. Blylevin himself singles through the left side, rips one through on a line drive, moves over to second on a bunt by Omar Moreno. Not Don't see that often, a bunt by someone to move up a pitcher. Tim Foley flies out to right, but then Dave Parker works a walk. And Fred Norman, with Willie Sargell at the plate once again, well... He's not going to be able to get out of this inning. It's a bad day at the office for Fred Norman. A bad day at the office for the Reds, really, in general. But a great day for Willie Stargell, who's really able to put a feather in his cap for this series. Again, as we talked about, it wasn't a great postseason showing so far for Willie Stargell. In 74, right, against the Dodgers, believe he had like two home runs actually kind of had a pretty good series but pretty much against the reds had struggled pretty mightily right you know had 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 a rough time in the postseason but here he is you know a season where he's going to get an mvp and really with this with his performance today is going to solidify an nlcs mvp you know he's going to be this is going to be a year for willie stargell right how often does this happen? You win a regular season MVP. Granted, a co-MVP. A championship series MVP, and then go on in the World Series to win the MVP of the World Series doesn't happen very often. But it does for Willie Stargell, 1979, really his year. Here he is at the plate, driving in more runs for the Pirates to put them up and really in many ways, kind of put this game on ice. Base hit. Down the right field line. Fly level will score. 5-0. Parker has the green light. Relay back in will not be in time. Stargell double to the Pirates lead. 6-0 over the Cincinnati Reds. Stargell has driven in three of the six runs. continue to do it time after time getting that big base hit here he drives the ball between Dreesen and the bag down the right field line 
by the time Collins can retrieve it, Parker has scored all the way to first, and Captain Willie Stargell, the guts of this ball club, the glue that holds us all together, our number one leader has indeed delivered again. Another great swing by Willie, ripping that ball. Kind of surprised that Dreesen isn't playing a little more down the line uh, to take away the double uh, from Stargell, but really at this point it doesn't matter. And that's going to do it for Fred Norman. In many ways, kind of a lousy outing for him. Two innings, four runs given up. Not a great day at the office. Probably wouldn't have mattered if he or Lacoste started this game. I think the Pirates were going to win it um, with Seaver unable to go on such short rest. It actually brings in a very young and spry Charlie Liebrandt in his rookie year. Charlie Liebrandt, of course, who would be on the World Series winning uh, Royals in 85, be one of their best pitchers, and then, of course, would be on those Braves teams who were often in the playoffs and actually was kind of a loser multiple times at the end uh, there, I believe, like in 91 and in 92 against the Twins and the Blue Jays. Um, but another young pitcher, Char- Mario Soto, uh, would end up uh, pitching in this game too. Two guys who were young pitchers on the Reds. Lee Brandt would have success elsewhere, and Soto would probably be the, the Reds' best pitcher uh, and one of the better pitchers in the National League during the 1980s. Uh, just interesting little tidbits there. Uh, Blylevin really, again, continues his groove, picks up another two strikeouts in the fifth inning, uh, gets another strikeout uh, to lead off the sixth, gets Foster swinging again, but that brings up Johnny Bench. And, uh, you know, this is going to be one of the final postseason games for Johnny Bench. This, you know, kind of final final time for Joe Morgan in a Reds uniform uh, and going to be one of the final postseason games for Johnny Bench. You know, despite actually 1981, the Reds had the best record in the National League but didn't make the playoffs because of the strike-shortened season in the two halves. But the man who, to this point, had been kind of the king of the NLCS, right, the king of the National League playoffs, many home runs, well, against he works a good count, Works a great at bat against Bly Levin. And Bly Levin's going to challenge him, you know, not wanting to walk hitters, you know, with this 6 nothing lead. And Johnny Bench is going to have a final great moment for himself, you know, and and, uh, and his great postseason career uh, that he established by doing some damage against Burt Bly Levin to make sure that the Reds aren't going to get shut out in this ballgame. Johnny Bench has answered the challenge with a home run to left field. The Cincinnati Reds are on the board. It's now a 6-1 game. And there it is, a classic confrontation. And Bench driving the 3-2 pitch deep to left. It's now 6-1. Well, unfortunately, Burt Blylevin fell behind in the count taking it all the way full had no choice but to try and come in and challenge him this time he did not win the challenge Johnny Bench did as he has done against the Pirates in the past Bench was the winner and scores their first run with that long home run a great swing from Johnny Bench but no other momentum no change in momentum in this game by gets immediately back to work gets 
Dreesen to ground out to first, and uh, Ray Knight puts a charge in, into one in the right center field gap, but Dave Parker runs it down. It really is the Pirates' day, and I mean, it's basically a party out there in the stadium. Everyone's happy. The, the Pirates' wives are dancing on top of the dugout. It's a real scene here at Three Rivers, and, uh, you know, they're actually they're not able to get anything against Lee Brant and Soto. They kind of do a really darn good job of limiting uh, the Pirates, but Blylevin, man, he's just dominant in this game. The real blemish, the only blemish in this game is that bench home run. He's able to scatter eight hits throughout this ball game, you know, and uh, it's just a really dominant outing from him. Um, in the bottom, it basically, you know, he's able to pick up another strikeout with Dave Concepcion in the eighth. Uh, you know, we're actually gonna we're gonna skip over the run that the that the that they're able that the Pirates are able to score in the bottom of the eighth. Phil Garner gets another base hit, um, you know, and with two outs, Tim Foley hits a fly ball, and Geronimo kind of glides over to it a little bit too easily, and the ball pops out of his glove. Uh, he's able to score with two outs, uh, but that brings us to the top of the ninth. Dan Dreesen. Grounds out to first. Bly Levin goes over to cover. Ray Knight grounds out to third. And that brings up Cesar Geronimo. The final thing standing in the way between the Pirates and another World Series berth. And what would be another date with the Orioles. Though technically we don't know that yet. right? That series has yet to wrap up. And of course... Bly Levin, he's going to get to two strikes. And you know what pitch he's going for. There ain't no other, there ain't another pitch to go for other than that patented breaking ball. And here he is standing on the mound, just like he wanted to, right? After all this whole year, basically, and in the year that had been filled with a lot of frustration for Bly Levin personally and for years that would be frustrating. Bly Levin was at his best today, looking for his ninth strikeout, looking for the win, looking to send the Pirates back to the World Series. Take a listen. As the Pirates are on the precipice and Bert Bly Levin, the Dutchman, is going to deliver. crowd is absolutely ready to tear three rivers down. 2-2 pitch. Deck swing foul up into the seats on the left side. Ends the way it is now. Look, yeah, yeah, he's finally decided it's time to go into that charming smile of his. Oh, he did a great job managing this club. Pulling for Blylevin to end it. Nobody on. Two away. Ninth inning. It's 
Getty. He came back and showed that, hey, I can't hold a lead. You give me the ball and I can do the job. He did one tremendous job, backed by great defense today, and timely hitting. We got him the runs when he needed them. Well, the Pirates played it today just like they have all year. They just went out and did it. They were aggressive from the beginning. The minute Lacoste walked Moreno and opened a crack in the door, he stole a base and we went on from there. Stargell had a home run and a two-run double. Padlock had a homer. And the Pirates have won the National League pennant for 79. And this total board tells it we were out hit 8-7. to seven. But won at 7-1. to one. Bench had their only run, a home run. Lylevin went all the way in as thrilling a victory as he will have pitched in his career. I don't care about some of those games he pitched in the other league. He's going to have to put this one at the top of the list. Put that right at the top of the list, and his wife is going to put that money in the top of her pocketbook. <laughs> oh, is that the way it works? I think so. Yeah, you've been there, too. Yes, sir. Well, what a way to finish it. Holy Toledo, what a season. And how about those 79 battling bucks? Well, they're tearing up this field. I don't mean that literally because they're just celebrating down there. It looks like a big disco at Three Rivers. And the Pirates have won the flag. As usual, a number of heroes. The pitching, the timely hitting, and the defense did it. That was the script they followed all year. Why change it for the championship game? And so for Nellie Bryles, this is Milo Hamilton. We're heading for the clubhouse. We'll be down there shortly. Let's join the celebration. What a moment. You can just hear how incredible the crowd is at Three Rivers. Still in the era where they stormed the field and the players had to go kind of almost run for cover. But of course, run to celebrate. And uh, we're going to have reactions here from the locker room, from the team, from the family. Just... It's real special. It's really, really special. I do want to take a moment to credit the Reds for how hard they fought. They got beat, right? It's kind of a similar thing for on the American League side where it was a battle. It was, a, it was hard fought. And then at the end, well, it was pretty clear who the better team was in kind of a route in the final game. Not a shutout like in the American League, but a dominant win nonetheless. Burt Blylevin, brilliant. Brilliant. We'll hear from him in the po in the post game, but you know, really one of it should be remembered. He was thought of kind of throughout his career as a guy who couldn't win the big one, right? Uh, as a guy who, well, not on a, not a winner, right? Well, when he was at his best, Bly Levin was great. He was great. Of course, Willie Stargell, man. We'll first start off with two of those gritty guys up the middle. Tim Foley, who had clutch hits time and again, clutch plays. And Phil Garner, who, of course, had the home run in game one and had really one of the most important plays in this game on one that doesn't really get credited for anything. You know, it's a single, but he kept a run from scoring. Such important plays. So here are the dynamic duo up the middle. Well, not so much dynamic. The scrappy duo. 
that's a little more apt for this team, but so important to the success of these pirates, Phil Garner and Tim Foley. And then after that, we're going to hear from the likes of Burt Blylevin, Willie Stargell, heck even, we might even throw Jim Bibby in there. Anyway, take a listen to the Pirates celebrating their National League pennant. Did you see the wives dancing on top of the... Yeah, uh, I, I thought that was great. I loved it. Uh, John, who do you have over there? Congratulations to the guys. This is Phil Geiner, who in the third inning of this ballgame made a heck of a play to cut off a run. And I think that one play, I remember that play, and I know you remember that play, too. Well, at that situation, it was a tight ball game, and we couldn't afford to let them get something on the board because it might give them a little breathing room and it might give them a little courage. So we had to keep them down. So I was going to try to catch that ball no matter what. Yeah, I remember what you said Sunday after we won it. You said, this is my biggest thrill in baseball. That was Sunday. This is <laughs> well, Friday. It keeps getting bigger, John. It keeps getting bigger and better. Terrific game. Great series. Let's go Thank get them. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. John, here he is. Tim Foley. Come in the middle, Tim. Congratulations, big guy. Thank you. It's great. Oh, man. It's great, great feeling. You know, it's it's unbelievable. We worked hard, we battled, we got some great pitching, and we won. We Let won. me ask you something. Did you see the wives all congregating on top of the uh, dugout? I told, I went to Bird after they were dancing, and I said, Bird, I said, uh, if you were going to lose this game before, I said you can't now because we can't come out here tomorrow. Now remember, he just said something. John Sanders just said something to Garner about saying last week, "Hey, that was my biggest moment." It keeps getting bigger, doesn't it? It's unbelievable. You know, it's just we battle from day to day, get better and better, and it's just more fun every day. One of my MVPs in the family, Tim Foley, is seen over here with Burb Eleven and the captain. Captain, of course, just voted the most valuable player of the playoff series, but he don't want to talk about that because family was on top of the locker room today. Well, it is. If I received the award, I'm very warm and moved by it. And if I could chop it up in 25 pieces, that's the way it should be because it's been a total team effort all year. I'm just so happy that I'm part of this ball club and hopefully we can just go to Baltimore and, and do the things we've been doing all year. Look at this right here. What is Willie this? Jr. What is this? <laughs> we are family. Yes, indeed. That's exactly what it is right here. Bert, let's get you in for just a second. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, it's flying. Bert, congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, I thank the good Lord for everybody being healthy this year and uh, got a tremendous year. Just one pitch away from a shutout, but it doesn't matter, does it? No, not with a 6 nothing lead. You know, you just got to rear back and challenge them. I didn't want to walk anybody, and it turned out super. I wore my Sunday go to meet in suit, but it doesn't look like it's going to last long. Go ahead, Bert. Hey, Bert, one more thing. Hey, Bert. Before the ball game, you said you wanted to be the guy jumping up and down on the mound at the end of the ball game, and you did. What does it really mean to you after oh. your years in the major league to get this opportunity? It's quite a thrill, you know. When I, when Bench hit that home run, it was six to one. I told myself, rare back, throw the ball because I want to be out here in the ninth inning. And uh, when I struck out Geronimo, I saw Otter jump, and I jumped, and it's <laughs> super feeling. I haven't felt that good since 1969. Congratulations again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ah, hearing from Willie Stargell, the the real leader of that team, man. Ah, he's special. And one thing about Phil Gardner, his uh, he's, you see him in his undershirt there. Uh, if you go and can watch the video, he's wearing a, a Tennessee University of Tennessee undershirt. Of course, he's loyal to his home and to his uh, his college days. Uh, it's interesting certain undershirts that guys would wear, but uh, man. And then you hear from Burt Blylevin, a guy who uh, he douses uh, Eddie there with uh, with champagne and 
man, you can just see how happy they are. I, I always love seeing the teams when they celebrate. It, it, it's so special to me. Um, cause you can see that release and, and, and obviously there's still work to do. And, uh, you can certainly see like the earlier manager, Chuck Tanner is talking about that and they know the job's not done, but man, it, you know, it's such hard work to get through that. And, um, the next group that we'll hear from are John Milner and Jim Bibby, uh, technically the former Mets, you know, guys who were, who were with the Mets, um, but guys who weren't really, who didn't get a chance to play uh, in 69, uh, but probably knew each other from the Mets organization. Um, here they are talking about what it means to win and, and what it means, uh, the special feeling it is to be there and, and what's ahead of them. Moment we saw on your on the top of your dugout the family on the top of theirs the Cincinnati Reds and what a tribute there. Yeah, it was a very very, very good feeling to see everybody so happy here today. We come here, we wanted to try to wrap it up, they wanted to go any further, and it was a thrill to see the wives getting out, just getting down and booging a little bit. I still got chills when I think of the Grand Slam against the Philadelphia Phillies. What a what a what a big hit for your your season, and of course one of the cappers for the whole season. Well, that might have got everybody started because we were a little down at one time. We. Got a little tired physically, we come back, and I got, the coach was 4 for 4 and I pinched it and got lucky and hit a grand slam, and uh, I seemed to get everybody started, and we just took it from there and just went on in. Yes, indeed. Thank you, John. John, come on in just a moment and talk with uh, Jim Bibby, because... Uh, Thank you, Eddie. I, I remember how happy you were just last Sunday. You've got to be every bit as happy or happier you what, now. I think I went past that little <laughs> interval at that time. I'm even more happier now than I was last Sunday. You talked at that time about how long you've been working just to get to this point. Is there any way that you can describe the feeling you have knowing that you've got the World Series ahead of you? i tell you what, you know, like uh, when I pitched my no-hitter in uh, 73 against Oakland, you know, I thought that was got to be one of the best feelings I've had in, the, in the, my major league career. But, hey, it doesn't even compare to what we did today and what we're headed forward to. Great perspective from those veteran players on this team and on this run and what more they have to do. The last group I'll, uh, I'll highlight here from the clubhouse is actually the broadcasters. We're going to hear from hall of famer, future hall of famer, Milo Hamilton and Nelson Bryles, who of course, you know, won as a player and shares his perspective as a broadcaster of, of what that feels like and, and kind of the feeling as a fan and as someone who's a little more adjacent to the team rather than as a player. It's an interesting perspective to reflect on. But the reason I do bring them up is this is actually going to be the final game of that they broadcast this year and the final game for Milo Hamilton in Pittsburgh. Um, he would go on to the Cubs and, well, then, you know, he thought he was going to be the guy for the Cubs, the voice of the Cubs. He was going to uh, uh, replace, uh, I believe it was Brickhouse. But then they brought in Harry Carey. And Harry Carey would be the voice of the Cubs, the famous voice of the Cubs. And they had had conflict before, back with the Cardinals, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, Milo Hamilton, you know, was initially was originally with the St. Louis Browns back in the 50s and then was the, with the Cardinals, um, but ended up having to leave there. 
would go on to be with the Braves for quite a while. Of course, called Hank Aaron's has a famous call on Hank Aaron's uh, record-breaking 715th home run as the radio call there. Um, but then would go on to be with the Pirates uh, for the last few years and was the voice of them for 1979. Uh, Bryles uh, would go on for a couple more years, but then would be replaced by Jim Rooker uh, on for both radio and television in the 80s. Um, Lanny Terry, who we heard on some of the calls of this game, would go on for a couple years, uh, but then would, uh, you know, there'd be different, uh, different voices, different faces for Pirates broadcasting as we get on later. But here are our broadcasters reflecting on this incredible team and also kind of the bittersweet celebration, knowing that it's the last game that they're going to be calling together this year. And they didn't know it at the time. It'd be the last games they called together. Oh, Milo Hamilton, Milo Hamilton, come over for just a second before we wrap it up because it appears the way the rules are this year on radio and television that that was your last game of the season. Well, evidently, uh, it's kind of uh, a downer. Uh, it's hard to believe, I suppose, with all the excitement, but uh, I'm so happy for this club, for the Galbraiths and Pete Peterson and Chuck Tanner and all the players and all the coaches and for the fans, but uh, to know that uh, it was my last game, uh, it just uh, is, I don't mean ever, but this season, because somewhere along the line, somebody decided that the local announcers weren't going to do the World Series this year, and I, that is really, uh, that's tough to take. It is tough to take, and I know it's tough for you to talk about it also. And let's bring in Nelly for just a moment, because he was your sidekick in crime whenever there was television. And Nelly, uh, your last game of the season, but boy, did the family have fun today. Boy, it certainly did, and to, to be a player and participate in it is one thing, and then your first year announcing, you end up uh, getting in a, in a pennant race. It, it's exciting on both ends, and I'm really proud to be part of this package. I just think that it wouldn't have been fair if we couldn't have got the announcers who have really helped to bring this family to its ultimate goal right here. Eddie Alexander along with John Sanders, Milo Hamilton, Nellie Bryles, and Lanny for Terry up in the booth probably still. Again, it's a bit of a bittersweet moment as during this time they didn't allow, I mean, the local broadcasters to call the games anymore. They sort of changed the rules and I believe many of them were upset about it. It was why, you know, when I covered 1980, I was kept searching and I was like, well, why in the world wasn't there a Harry Callis call of the final out of the world series? And then, Oh, they prohibited them. They changed the rules and they were upset about it. Right. And it, it wasn't a good thing. At least the local radio broadcasters should have just been able to call the game on radio, right? Come on. It's pretty simple <laughs> from my perspective, at least, you know, I can definitely understand on the TV. Um, but anyway, for the world series, we're going to actually be on ABC. It's going to be Keith Jackson, Cosell. And I believe it's going to be Don Drysdale as the, as the third man. Uh, call in the World Series. Not going to be on NBC. They would kind of uh, alternate them for years. But that World Series, the 79 World Series, is going to be great. And I think the 79 playoffs are a bit underrated for how entertaining and how uh, highly competitive the games were. 
But certainly this World Series, we are going to get. It's going to be a real treat. And I can't wait to cover it. Got so much. We're going to have seven games worth to cover and plenty to talk about between these two teams. A rematch of the 71 World Series. Which I've yet to cover, and I will cover. I will give it its due. It's it's definitely 71 is one I've been meaning to cover. But we're on 79. And it's it's going to be exciting. Until then, catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.